Hi, I'm Kiran Vangavetti, founder and CEO of Blue Sapphire. The fight between the good guys and the bad guys is an eternal one. And in a way, you could say that it is what forces us to constantly innovate and build better technology. Thanks to the pervasive use of digital technology, today a theatre actor could single-handedly take down the electricity grid of an entire country. In this episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast, your host Akshay Dutt talks to Kiran Vangaveti, the founder of Blue Sapphire Technologies, about the evolution of cybersecurity products. Kiran has had a ringside view of this sector which allowed him to anticipate the broad trends in this space and start Blue Sapphire, a full-stack threat detection and response platform for enterprises. Stay tuned to learn about the cutting-edge technologies in cybersecurity and please do subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on YouTube or any audio streaming platform. Give me an elevator pitch of uh, Blue Sapphire. It's hard to give an elevator pitch of Blue Sapphire without telling you a little bit about myself. Mm. Uh, so I started my career, been in the IT industry for 25 years. Last 19 years have been specifically in cybersecurity. I work for Fortune 10 and Fortune 100 companies leading large cybersecurity teams across multiple global locations in over 180,000, 250,000 kind of user base. Uh, irrespective of where I was, uh, my last gig was with Tudor Investments, $18 billion hedge fund as their chief information security officer. Irrespective of where I was, there was a problem statement that I constantly encountered. And the problem statement was not associated with the budgets or the people. It was necessarily about the capability of what I needed to do. I couldn't do. Um, essentially, in the security operations center, it took us a lot of time to actually look at the incidents, triage them, and if we wanted to respond, we were very limited with the capabilities that other tools provided, and we were very reliant. We couldn't design our own responses. This made me give, think give me, there has give, to be a better way. Uh, give me an example. Uh, like you're saying that this capability was not there with you to look at an incident, mm-hmm. triage, respond. Uh, just can you help our uh, listeners uh, understand this through an example and you know what do you mean by triage and what are the kind of responses that happen what are the kind of incidents that happen sure so um, when i was at one of these fortune 10 companies one of the world's largest employer uh, we were constantly under attack by nation state attackers and we would see those artifacts which in itself was pretty interesting for us. We would see those artifacts that actually now, what, what, were part of the attack. What's an artifact? Like uh, my understanding of artifact comes from Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually similar to that. So when you say artifact, it's an indicator of compromise. Uh, and what is an indicator of compromise? It could be a registry entry. It could be a file entry. It could be... Uh, a privilege escalation log that we are seeing or a specific usage of a specific command, which is traditionally not done, or a new file in the entire uh, ecosystem, which we have never actually introduced, probably a malicious file or something. It could be a file, registry entry, memory artifact, shortcut, uh, browser artifact, which means that you know uh, there was some activity on the browser, which we need to figure out what that activity was. 
and it is stored in browser forensics and browser forensics is the only way to bring that data back. So the many of these, and it could be as simple as a log entry. And also something that all of us are used to is an antivirus alert going off. Right? It could even, that could actually be an artifact. So irrespective of where we were, uh, once we identified an artifact, for us to verify if that artifact was present anywhere else on the network, what happened before that artifact was generated, what happened after that artifact was generated, we were very limited in our capabilities to do that. And we had to jump from tool to tool to tool to actually get the data we need because once I see something happening and I'm, say for example, I see a PowerShell downloading a script from an external party and I'm like, okay, did that even try to, did that actually succeed? Did that connection succeed? I had to go back to the firewall logs to look at the data and I had to parse that information. Proxy logs, because most of the time the data would actually get rerouted to proxy or if it was an odd port, I need to know if the firewall allowed it or did it actually not allow it? And how do we actually make that determination? What's a PowerShell? Uh, PowerShell is a scripting language uh, in Windows, a very popular scripting language in Windows. Usually used for system administration, but can be used for malicious purposes. Okay. It is equivalent to what Unix, back in the Unix world, we would call shell scripting. Uh, shell scripting was very popular and Unix admins loved it and they geeked out about how Windows is for idiots and Unix is for the intellectually superior human beings. Um, then Windows decided to address that problem finally and start doing something about it. And PowerShell was their answer. Mm. In fact, actually today PowerShell is used extensively by Microsoft also. So all the Windows interfaces that are built for administrators is actually built on the backend of PowerShell. So everything runs on PowerShell in a Windows environment today. Okay, got it. So uh, PowerShell is like an environment in which you can uh, access more things and you can write some code to get higher level access than what a, the typical Windows UI will allow. You can allow. automate a lot of things without actually having to go through, navigate through the UI, mm. right? Okay. Think of it like a bad job. Back in the day, most of us who have learned MS-DOS and others, we know what a bad scripting is. Right? Think of it like bad scripting on steroids. Okay. You can do okay. a whole lot of the activity in a more automated way, faster than what you could do in a traditional way. This is supposed to help the administrators, system administrators and system engineers, so they can actually do faster deployments across their environments and work with uh, user requirements and so forth in an automated fashion, rather than just point and click. We're just dumb, right? I mean, it, it would really take a long time for you to do something like a point and click to create 100 users or 200 users. And in large enterprises, it's very often that you have to create some 300, 400 accounts overnight. That's a nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. And you would actually use our, your own scripting to do that. That would make your job life a lot easier. So see, things like that sort, right? Uh, you can actually script pretty much anything in Windows today. Okay. Uh, it's become very, very powerful and the most powerful entity that Windows has created. It became so powerful that the attackers have taken notice. Mm. Okay. And they use that to attack because it is present in every system. It's automated. Not everybody knows how to use it. Not everybody has a decent logging mechanism on it, enabled by default. So attackers use it very often. Okay. So you said you had to use uh, uh, like a number of tools. There was no single tool, but there were a number of tools that you had to use to triage. Uh, now, what do you mean by triage first? And what are the tools that give me some examples of tools? 
basically triage is actually understanding the data and understanding what happened behind an incident and once an alert has been triggered is that alert an incident or not that determination has to be made that is made through a process called triaging triaging is actually getting all the sources of truth sitting together and understanding if this actually is an incident or it's actually a false positive it basically analysis okay right? so li- like determining the severity and whether this is a concern or not a concern Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. So and, and that kind of triage would take a lot of time because we had to jump between tools to tools to tools. And a very simple example again, let's go back to the antivirus because a lot of people can relate to an antivirus alert on their systems. What happened before that antivirus alert triggered? It's great that the antivirus actually caught what you what was happening and it actually quarantined it. In most cases it actually does succeed quarantining the system. and actually uh, gives an alert saying that i have quarantined a b and c and you should be fine now at that alert is actually received by the security operation center in an enterprise and an analyst takes a look at it verifies that the quarantine was successful and then closes the ticket but that's not the full story how did that actually file get there to get quarantine what happened after that point what happened before that point these are all important aspects to understand if this was actually an incident or it's an isolated incident or what it is right is was it a part of an attack and only one part of the attack got caught and we missed the entire rest of the attack because it went under the radar what happened that determination was very very important and sometimes it's also important that you may find an attack and i'm asking myself the question did it happen only on that system or i have 20000 systems across my enterprise where else did this happen that we did not catch it how do i get an authoritative answer on i see this attacker here is he hiding somewhere else on my network there's no easy way to do this or get that data together so performing the triage and then analysis and then figuring out a way to respond to that problem was becoming a nightmare and we used to start writing our own scripts and many a day many times these scripts would take days to run attacker could actually finish his job in matter of hours and we would be searching for days and weeks across our enterprise there's no easy way to do it i mean there were antivirus tools there were edrs and also and so forth but we had to rely on what they told us rather than what we want out of that tool which means that we had to rely on the alerts that these tools were throwing and if we saw something suspicious that we wanted it to catch we have to upload the sample to the vendor and ask him to build signatures for that or bring bring build detections for that and then help us detect it he was great we were a fortune 10 company so the vendor would bend over backwards and try to accommodate us in a matter of 3 weeks which is still too long but what about others right so that's when i got out and said there's a better way to do this the problem is that we have evolved as multiple tools over a period of last 15 20 years but now there is actually technology currently available for you to build a single platform that can operate across the entire stack and give you visibility and build an automated storyline based on the data it already has so when an analyst looks at an alert the entire storyline is laid out for him so in a matter of seconds he can make a determination whether this is an incident or not and how does he respond without relying on agent the problem in many enterprises is that your agents are not up to date sometimes they're not even installed 
And nine out of 10 times, the attacker is more successful at finding that particular system than anything else on your network. So it ends up that you have to define something on which your agent does not exist. So we've built a complete agentless model to actually be able to respond to situations like that. Okay. That became What's... very critical for us based on the experiences I had both in large financial sectors, uh, pharmaceutical sector, and so on and so forth. What's what's an agent? Agent is uh, <laughs> agent is um, it's an antivirus. Uh, is can be called an agent. Your EDR is an agent. What, what's EDR? Uh, uh, endpoint detection and response. Okay. So it's part of an evolution of how cybersecurity evolved. Back in the day, we used to call it antivirus. Then somebody said, "Hey, you know what? Antivirus only depends on a signature." It's too old. It needs to be more modern, uh, and uh, we can detect this using machine learning models. So you don't have to depend on updates. And then the machine learning model of antivirus became popular. They call them the next generation antivirus, and so, all of a sudden the attackers. Uh, and antivirus essentially is constantly scanning your hard disk for uh, comparing if there is any script or file which matches a database of threat uh, or threatening. Uh, files and yes. scripts. Okay, that is correct. And but it's very so, really easy to change the uh, what it is comparing against is hashes of a database, uh, hashes of a file. Hash okay. is a unique fingerprint of a file. Right? Okay. No matter how many times you run it, if the same file will generate the same hash, and it's like a fingerprint of that file. Okay, and it's like your identity, right? Okay, okay. your identity is not you, but it is just a fingerprint of you. Okay. Right? So an so, antivirus will only work if the hash is an exact match, whereas if a virus is yes. capable of evolving and changing its hash, then it will not work. Uh, yes. We okay. call them polymorphic viruses. right? So uh, they can actually change shape, uh, change themselves constantly with every landing that they do. So very soon, these antiviruses become irrelevant. So somebody said, hey, you know what? We have machine learning models that can actually look at the patterns and then tell you whether this is a virus or not, rather than solely depending on definitions. We used to call them antivirus definitions back then. Right? Those okay. are actually database of hashes. Hmm. Right? And machine learning models became popular. And then we went into a model called next-generation antivirus. It used to be called next-gen antivirus. Then attackers wisened up. They said, okay, fine, you want to detect us that way. What we will do is we will use existing tools that are already present on your operating system and we won't down, usually not download anything malicious, right? So there is a challenge, right? Even the machine learning models depended on detecting existing patterns of activity, not unknown patterns of activity. So if it's an unknown, unknown is what we call it. If it's an unknown, unknown, it becomes a challenge. You have never known about it. There was no pattern for your machine learning model to run. And then you cannot detect it, right? That was a challenge with the machine learning models. Uh, but then attackers are also wisening up. They are like, okay, fine, you're using machine learning models. You're using a combination of signature-based detection. You're using a combination of those. So what we will do is let's walk away from downloading anything malicious. Let's start using something that's already present in your operating system. It is like, I will not bring a knife into the airport. I will use something from one of the airport kitchens. Okay, so you don't have to pass those scanners. <laughs> mm -hmm. I will use something that's already available for me. Mm. Okay, right? okay. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So they're using something that's already present inside your environment because you're scanning everything that actually is coming from outside and you have pretty good decent systems. So they said, okay, fine. What does your Windows system have? What does your Linux system have? It has many capabilities to actually destroy itself, just like anything else. Right. Uh, so we use the, we call them LOL, la, uh, living of the land binaries. So what that means is, your operating system has a lot of functionality. You're probably just scraping the surface of it. 95% of us probably use it for email, video, and YouTube. That's probably covers the maximum extent and browsing, shopping, so on and so forth. So basically the browser, the uh, email system, and probably YouTube, uh, video streaming. That's probably the extent of our operations in most cases. But your operating system is built to support a lot more than that. There are constantly updates happening across environments. Your system administrators are, administrators are controlling your operating system behavior to fine-tune it to your organization requirements. A lot of capability to self-monitor and self-maintain exists. And an attacker can use those existing binaries, which usually are never touched. You and me would never touch it. And there are probably hundreds of them. And he would use one of those to actually go exploit your own system. For example, if I want to upload data from your network to an external party, previously what an attacker would do is download his own tool set and upload that information, which essentially caused problems because now he's getting detected. But if I use something called BITS, Background Intelligent Transfer Service, that is built into most Windows environments, and in Linux there are other methods to do it, but let's focus mostly on Windows because a lot of us can relate to Windows environments, which is used by Windows natively to download Microsoft patches. Right? It's a very intelligent system. It can actually stop the transfer in between and start exactly where it left off. It can do all kinds of broken uh, downloading. It can download uh, 10 kilobytes from this source, 20 kilobytes from that source, more like a bit torrent. It can do a bunch of interesting things. Attackers just use that to download the data which went completely under the radar, right? So many of, the, many of these activities can be done using the native binaries. Well, there's a very popular command called who am I? It tells you who is the current lockdown user, is it part of a domain, is he a domain administrator, and what are the other users that are logged onto this system? Everything is part of your own operating system. So user attackers started using that, and they don't get detected anymore. Then came the world of EDR. Endpoint detection and response. They said, okay, your antivirus is looking for malicious stuff. Attacker is not using malicious stuff. It's only using what is already present. So essentially, I need to look at all executions and determine what is malicious based on certain rules. And these rules should be dynamic. So we went from detecting hashes, fingerprints of files, to machine learning models to also extending it to a rule-based model, right? Then organizations become <clears throat> tired of managing the EDR systems and the antivirus systems separately. There are too many agents that are coming onto the system. So they said, okay, fine. The market responded. They merged both the endpoint and EDR and became EPP, Endpoint Protection Platform. Uh, just give me examples of brand names also for like what's an EDR brand name I might have heard. Antivirus, so, of course, uh, like McAfee, Norton. <laughs> Many of us, McAfee, Norton, all of us remember. 
And when machine learning models and next gen antivirus came in, uh, it was purely a silence world, the world of silence, CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike is still present, but silence died uh, in the hands of BlackBerry. But um, CrowdStrike was also a very strong contender at that point, And actually, they were playing second fiddle to silence. But CrowdStrike pivoted into EDR, which silence did not. And then CrowdStrike also became a next-generation antivirus and EDR put together to EPP. They're pretty much the leaders in the space. So CrowdStrike and Sentinel-1 will be your typical EPPs today. There are many more. Trend has caught up. Sophos has caught up. A bunch of others have caught up. But everybody's playing second fiddle to what these guys are doing. CrowdStrike undoubtedly is the leader in that space. Okay. Got it. Got it. So EPP right. is essentially... But all of these, even even within this advanced kind of models, you still can't tell it what you want it to do. It, it works based on what it was told to do. And if you wanted to do something, you have to go back to CrowdStrike and say, hey, I want to build this. They're not extensible. Their data sets are not extensible. You don't have direct access to that data if you want to correlate that information with something else. It only gives you alerts. It doesn't tell you what all it is looking for. It only gives you the alerts. So you're completely dependent on the alerts you're receiving. You have no intelligence, no say in what it is going to give you. These are all very rigid systems. And we thought there was a better way to do this. And that's how Blue Software was born in 2017. We got an honorary mention in 2018 by Gartner saying that we were thinking very differently from what the market space was thinking at that point in time. Uh, lo and behold, five years later, today, XDR is a very popular terminology, extended detection and response. So in between, MDR became a thing, managed detection and response, which is a MSSP service for EDR. Because it was that complex. What is MSSP? Managed security service provider. Okay, okay, okay. Right. So that became very popular. Um, so that, that would and, mean there would be like a call center in India or like a BPO in India where there's a human being who's looking at alerts and yes, uh, in yes. conjunction with there, the There's a security operation center run by these guys because EDR was very complex. It is actually still is very complex for a common person to understand. So it is usually run by a team of technology experts in a security operation center that became managed detection and response. Then today, the world is talking about XDR, extended detection and response. What that actually means is they finally realize that just looking at endpoint is not valuable because you don't know what your point of entry was versus what the attacker's point of entry was. But the single source of truth happens to be that a communication needs to happen, whether encrypted or not, and that fingerprint is available on the network. So if you're listening to your network, looking at the proxy data, looking at the, all the other logs, and combine that with the data on the endpoint, then you have a better footprint of what is happening. And you understand the storyline better. Right? Uh, a lot of these companies start, were pushing the agenda of, you know, endpoint is the EDR is the holy grail of all detection because all action is happening there. But whether we like it or not, we believed strongly back in 2017 itself. We said, no, that data is not enough. Unless you're trying to become a rocket scientist within that space, you're looking at a very narrow set of data and trying to make determination whether something is an attack, which is a problem. Because the more data you have, the better chances that you have of detecting something. The narrower you get, the more specialized you have to become for no reason. Absolutely no reason. All You have access to all of this other data and you could have easily picked up. 
but instead you actually uh, decide to actually focus down on that narrow lane and then figure out how to become an expert in that is completely not valuable to the end consumer okay so uh, in an EDR, a lot of jargons a lot yeah, of yeah, jargons I, I know <laughs> i'm going to recap it uh, just so that i'm also clear on it and you can correct me if i'm wrong uh, an edr is essentially looking at activity within the device with the end user like say an employee of a company the laptop that he uses so it is looking at activity there uh, it is not looking at the interaction between that device and, and the network uh, that is the that is what is currently missing uh, and that is yes. what uh, blue sapphire is doing so you're doing both you're looking at the device and the communication between the device and the network or you're only looking at the communication so we're looking at everything right uh, blue sapphire was born with the thought process that hey in this age of big data back in 2017 i'm talking today we all know big data Back in 2017, I said, in this day, day of big data and, uh, you know, large scale indices available, um, it's a shame that we have to jump tool to tool to tool to make this determination. And it's also a shame that we have to depend on such a narrow set of data, which the consumer who has paid for the product does not have access to. So we started with what we call an open data platform. We built this large scale open data platform that's scalable to petabytes of data. And we built it on open schemas so any of our customer can look into the data and understand the data as is without having to come back to us. So they can build whatever models they want on top of it. That's number one. Number two, we built it on the premise that you have to look at the entire operations in entity. Your organization is not working in silos. What I mean by that is your technology division is not running in silos. Your technology is not running only on endpoint. Right? You have your proxy systems, you have your firewalls, you have your switches, routers, data centers, uh, your Kubernetes platforms, uh, your cloud centers, your hybrid uh, mesh. All of this is working together and you are trying to make a determination of whether something is malicious activity based on activity on only one of those components. That really doesn't make sense. Well, it does make sense, but that's not enough. Right? So we need to look at all of these data points in Unision and bring all of them onto a common schema. So I can actually build a storyline and immediately tell you that activity that happened on that endpoint, this was the prequel to it and this is the sequel to it. Now you can make a stronger determination of what this is. Was it a general system administration activity or was it actually an attacker activity, right? While we were busy doing that, MITRE came up with what we call a MITRE framework of all possible attacks that an attack techniques an attacker can use against an enterprise to succeed. And they did a good job of understanding and providing information on all different kinds of techniques. So today we map against them, but that was the fundamental premise with which we got in and we look at the largest set of data so we can tie all of these data points together. What is MITRE? Uh, M-I-T-R-E. So they are actually a nonprofit, uh, I think based out of Europe. What they have started to do is looked at all these attacks going on and said, okay, we have no consistent way of mapping what the attacker is doing. I'm calling it a specific name. Another vendor is calling it something. Um, another a group of analysts are calling it something else, right? I may be calling it process following. Somebody else is probably calling it process emptying. Somebody else is calling it something else. Now, with that kind of uh, understanding, we don't have a common way of understanding an attack together. So 
the same attacker activity i am defining it differently versus somebody else so in order to be able to define attacker activity consistently across the uh, globe you need to understand the activity in a standardized form so they started mapping all different ways in which uh, an attack can happen so let's take the example of a bank right you want to go rob a bank and let's talk about physical bank we are talking about the physical world physical bank back in the day we used to hear a lot of these bank robberies uh, what they did in essence was mapped out every single piece of uh, technique that a bank robber can use to attack the bank and mapped it out and said these are the only known ways to do it each of these technique can be used in multiple ways and they said okay usually they come in wearing mask now it could be a muffler it could be a brown bag it could be rajnikanth's face mask whatever it is right so that can be accomplished multiple ways but the technique is hiding identity second one there could be a car running outside which is not shut down which is parked in a place which is very close to the bank ready for a getaway once the money is there and there's a driver waiting in there for the folks to come back and the engine is running now that car could be anything right it could be a small buggy all the way to a container truck right but that is a technique right and they need access they're going to spray paint your cameras so they don't get detected they're going to come with bags they're going to try to hide their identity wear gloves those kind of things and in the cyber world they have defined those kind of technique and said when a you attacker drops into a network what are the things he does right so because he does not know your network it is like a blind man dropping in a dark room he needs to feel touch around and understand what's around him right in our world we call it recon reconnaissance which essentially means he needs to understand where did he land first what is it is it a windows system is it a linux system is it a mac what user is this is this the directly the admin desktop that i got or is it some pune or receptionist desktop that i got into or is it actually the ceo's desktop he needs to make the determination and then he needs to start fingerprinting your entire network so he gets a better understanding of what is available for him to exploit right then he launches his attack but before he launches his attack he will start building uh, persistence now persistence is just a fancy way of saying he will open up as many back doors as possible in case you detect this activity he can come back through some other door right so those is called we call persistence then he decides what to attack once he decides what to attack then he knows what resources to go after what domain administrator tokens to go after who has access to what database what service account where is it written some people write it in text files some configuration files actually have uh, passwords api keys to cloud some code usually has api keys that are hard coded into the code itself they're going looking for all of that that they can get access to once they have that they steal data which is then they'll package the data they'll steal it out from right under your nose without creating big noise because if i start transferring terabytes of data outside your network you will know because your bandwidth will get choked so it needs to be a very slow process they'll bleed it out once they bleed it out then it comes defense evasion which essentially means i will try to cover my tracks i will delete the logs as soon as they are created i will delete every file that i have used i will delete my working folders i will delete everywhere that i packaged my data so i will erase my footprints right and then i'm gone usually it is called impact what that means is either you walked away with the data and started selling it in the black market 
or you walked away with the data and you're holding them ransom. You have ransomware encrypted their systems. Usually ransomware encryption is the only time an external file comes into the network and then it encrypts the entire network. So it's usually the last stage of the attack. They've decided, they've come together, a group of team of very sharp engineers have come together and said, okay, these are all the different ways in which an attack can happen. Each of these can be exhibited in multiple ways. But essentially, the, the baseline remains the same. So if you are able to reliably detect these techniques, then you know where the attacker is. They did not make a distinction of this is only on the endpoint, this is only on the network, this is only on the proxy server, this is only on the switch, this is only so they did not make that detention. They looked at it as holistic as possible. When these people, when all the industry started mapping themselves against the MITRE matrix, they realized that there are shortfalls because you're not looking at it holistically. Then came the, then the industry coined the term XDR, extended detection and response, which is nothing but what we did, started doing back in 2018, which is what Gartner recognized us for and saying, okay, you know, you need to look at it holistically. But they didn't call it that. They came up with a much stronger marketing term than a unified cyber defense platform, which we said. Uh, they came up with XDR, Extended Detection Response. Spent millions of dollars on that marketing. Today, the end customer is confused. What is going on? Right? Then there came OpenXDR uh, Initiative, which essentially is trying to explain what XDR is to customers who do not understand what XDR is and help them understand, right? Uh, essentially, this has been there for ages. We always looked at this data in Unision. We were looking at it in silos. We just needed to look at it in Unision. There was no need for more and more acronyms, but that's how the world works. Okay, interesting. Uh, who else is, the, is CrowdStrike also there now in XDR? CrowdStrike is the pioneer of using that term XDR. So okay. they, they practically coined the term and made Gartner cough it out. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. okay. So uh, they practically coined the term. So CrowdStrike, Sentinel One, now Sophos. Sophos is still talking MDR. They're not talking XDR. Uh, Trend is talking MDR. They're still not talking XDR. But essentially, the bane of cybersecurity industry is that all vendors speak exactly the same language on their website. It will become very hard for you to know whether he's actually a DLP vendor or a threat management company or a threat intelligence company or a cybersecurity endpoint company or a network detection company unless you get into page two, page three. Front page, everybody says the same thing. Using AI, using ML, single pane of glass, right? Stop threats and stop attackers. These five things everybody says. Unfortunately, what is single pane of glass? It's a very abused term in this specific industry, right? When I say single pane of glass, I mean I'm looking at everything in one screen and I'm able to make a determination without having to jump from one tool to the other, to the other, to the other, right? Everything is integrated so I can see a story end to end. None of them have it, honestly. I mean, even CrowdStrike has brought Humio just for that purpose and they still don't have it. Uh, FireEye has bought one company. Cisco has like unbelievably brought too many companies. Everything is a different tool. Nothing maps to each other. The only link there is a hyperlink pointing you to the other tool. That's the best they have gotten to. And it is very real, right? Some of us who are listening on the show, if you're architects, you know that when you actually start integrating different 
tools that have been architected differently, it becomes a nightmare to actually make them integrate. Your best bet is to just get them to talk just enough, but you can't, you can't come up with a single schema, you can't come up with a single platform to hold all of that information and build something valuable. It is very hard work. I mean, we've seen billion dollar companies fail, so we know it is hard work. Uh, unlike that, Blue Sapphire was built ground up to be a single platform. So it's not a bolt-on solution. Like I saw, um, like, you know, you see most of the bikes on the street making too much noise or too flashy or very big handle handlebar that came in. It was not designed for that bike. Like that. I mean, these integrations never really work very well. Uh, when a bike is actually built ground up to support those kind of things, right? So that kind of a uh, analogy I can give you. Uh, so when you build something built on, from ground up, you have designed it to be accommodative. From ground up, you have designed it to be a single pane of glass. From ground up, you have designed it to be a single data platform that is actually open in nature. It's a very different discussion versus tying in different pieces together. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, DLP that uh, you said that on the website is not clear whether this is endpoint or MDR or DLP. What is DLP? Uh, data leakage prevention. Okay. And, uh, so essentially, it is like, you know, uh, there are regulators who do not want you to publish or lose customer data in clear text, right? Essentially, that says that, you know, you should not be transmitting. For example, PCI is a great example because it's used across the world. It says your credit card information should never be transmitted in plain text. And, and if it is, it should always be encrypted. Now, how do I know that data is going out? I need to monitor the wire and sense the wire and see all the data transmissions going across and then try to detect it from there. So these systems are trying to detect if some data is getting leaked. And now this could be a malicious attacker leaking data out also. But trust me, when a malicious attacker tries to leak data out, you will never find it. At least not by doing these systems because it's very easy to build your own encryption these days. You really don't have to use existing algorithms or you can actually do something very fancy yourself in a matter of minutes. And these systems will fall flat on its face. Okay. So uh, a DLP is just able to check if data is going out unencrypted. Yes. Okay. Okay. Got and it. And there are proxy companies, proxy server, proxy uh, software companies. Um, they're companies that are actually doing identity management. All of these, they, if you look at the front page, everybody claims the same thing. These five points. Single pane of glass, stop threats, stop attacks. I don't... And, you know, uh, uh, AI, ML. Mm. To the extent that I have a close friend who calls it Malai. Malai (laughs) (laughs) It's ML and AI. You have to have Malai. (laughs) Do this on Malai to learn. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, uh, what are the... uh, See, I'm assuming that a company which has, let's say... 52. So, for example, I, I run a recruitment business in addition to podcasting. So, I have about, let's say, 35, 40 recruiters on my payroll. And we use a couple of cloud technology tools, like a couple of SaaS tools. Uh, so, someone like us would never need XDR, right? Um, you might be surprised. Uh, you at this point you don't have any visibility so you are actually living with the happiness that you don't know what you don't know 
but right, uh, uh, everything i'm using has its own so for example let's say we are using salesforce for erp so mm-hmm. salesforce has its own security you're using gmail for communication gmail has its own uh, gmail and the whole google suite like uh, spreadsheets presentations everything is on the google suite um and then we are like let's say using linkedin for sourcing so i mean all of these tools are uh, coming with their own security right so why would a company like us which is using a bunch of saas tools to run their business need xdr so let me put it this way so you're thinking about it wrong right you're thinking about that you know each of these saas tools have their own security so we don't use anything else other than this so we don't have a large database in our systems for some attacker to steal or so on and so forth uh, let's think about it from the thought process of what if an attacker gets into your system and is able to impersonate you what happens then for a moment let's forget about professional life let's just think about what kind of havoc it would leak in your personal life if an attacker is able to impersonate you point your friends in the wrong direction mislead your friends family what kind of havoc then can they cause and if they're constantly recording what's going on on your system uh how many bank accounts will they get access to a lot of us have max right i mean as secure as they are they are still vulnerable to threats and the reason i picked the uh case of mac yeah, but which is now also available in windows now with android is that your text messages come into your mac also yeah right and the same feature is now available with a lot of uh, good branded expensive android phones on windows you can have that sidecar facility where all your texts are also displayed on your uh, laptop so you can respond to them immediately or uh, do you think i really need your two factor authentication anymore mm. your text based authentication do i need it anymore if i get access to your system mm. i'm not right. going to touch your linkedin i'm just going to reach out on linkedin out of the thousands of outreaches you do i'm going to make few more outreaches on linkedin to your long term connects and ask them for money or ask them for professional private information or ask them and lure them into clicking on links that they will trust because the trust factor is with you not with the attacker right right so when akshay sends a link and says hey this is absolutely funny in my entire 20 years of recruitment i've never seen like something like this 90% of them will click on it right and that then now i have baited others and say for example i send out an email to all your employees from linkedin because all of you guys are active on linkedin uh, and say hey you know what we need to, this is a strong initiative from us we need to start posturing this year we're going to double our revenues these are the updated policies this is the market strategy more information click here done i honestly don't necessarily need to uh know your data know your logins know anything right most of this can be done but a lot of these scenarios start to crop up right your two factor is defeated now i can start destroying your clients reputations i can get into most of your clients because you all of your clients trust you because they you probably have those relationships for a long years and i can start getting into all of your clients this is called supply chain attacks essentially you pick the lowest hanging fruit and then go after that and start going after the big guy and your clients are actually working for larger clients they are working for some other larger clients that is how i gain my entry into a large enterprise not by directly focusing on a large enterprise that's not how i'm going to do it right 
So at this point, you will re- you will be that lowest hanging fruit. So security at every level is important. Awareness at every level is very very important. Um, as part of our onboarding process and as part of our uh, regular uh, policy reviews, uh, security awareness training is a very mandatory piece that we very strongly look at. Um, I think we do it almost every semi-annually, and onboarding it's mandatory. You know, we sit with them, we help them understand. It's not a video that gets played out. Yes, it is a video that gets played out, but it is played out along with us, explaining the impact of what a single compromise from your end could mean, because that is your weakest link. As they say, human firewall is the weakest link at this point, because all of these attackers now know that that is where they can they have higher chance of success. Rest everything, yes, we have technologies. If it's not Blue Sapphire, it's CrowdStrike. If it's not CrowdStrike, it's Cisco. If it's not Cisco, it is FireEye, somebody else. We'll get detected at some point, right? All of us know how to detect it. But if somebody, some attacker, some user getting impersonated, doing it willingly, it's a very hard problem to solve because a lot of it is a psychology issue, not necessarily a technology issue, right? Mm, okay, and this is called social engineering, right? Like trying to hundred percent defeat 100%. the human firewall. Okay, hundred percent. So, uh, got it. I mean, okay. So while you can technically justify why a small company like what I run would need XDR, but I'm sure if you created like an ideal customer profile, I would not fall into that, right? So, who is your ideal customer profile? Well, um, our company's mission is to build enterprise-class security for medium enterprises. And that has been the mission of the organization. Now we are extending it towards micro enterprises like yours. Yes, you wouldn't need the kind of large infrastructure needed to run security as other companies, but you would need some lightweight protection yourself, right? And how do an organization like that protect itself? Now, we'll park that for a little bit because I want to focus on our core focus. Our mission was to bring that enterprise class security possible for medium enterprises. Because we believe that the threats are the same, the challenges are the same, but they don't have the right resources to manage it, right? And with that mission, we started building our products and tool sets aimed at the medium enterprises. And when we say medium enterprises, we're talking anywhere between 50, 100 million in revenue all the way up to 2 billion in revenue. Now, we do have customers with 6 to 8 billion in range, and some of them are about 12 to 14 billion in range. But our ideal market size is that we are focusing on is the medium enterprises. And and largely our customer base, 90% of our customer base today is in North America. We honestly want to change that. Trust me, as an Indian company, we honestly want to change that and be in a position to say, hey, you know what? Uh, More than 80% of our customer base is in India. Uh, But from a maturity cycle, it is going to take some time. We are far ahead in some areas and quite a distance to go in some areas. So we're looking forward to it. We personally believe 2025 is the year of cybersecurity in India. And that's that's what I'm betting on. And that's what I'm telling my folks that it, this turnaround will happen. Revenue-wise, it may be different, but from a customer count perspective, I think the regulations will start flowing in, a couple of hits, a couple of fines, regulatory interventions will start driving that in India. And I think we'll have to wait till early 2025, mid 2025, for that to actually start taking off. It started to take off now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of local companies that are actually interested in securing themselves thanks to the ransomware attackers. No thanks to any of us. Thanks to the ransomware attackers who made this possible. 
uh, but it's still not a board level issue in India. That is actually uh, some concern, but it's changing. So uh, essentially, you would look at companies which have a, a position of a CISO, uh, uh, what you also used to be like a chief information security officer. A virtual CISO or somebody like that. In some cases, like, you know, up, up until half, a, uh, up until, you know, 150, 200 million, most companies have a CIO who is doubling up as a CISO. Hmm. Okay. Or they have hired a virtual CISO. A CIO and a CTO is the same thing. I mean, in India, typically most startups have a CTO. Uh, rather than a CIO, what is the difference? I think CTO is more technology focused. It's focused very heavily on the technology stack. CIO function is more comprehensive than just technology stack. It's both people, process, and technology function for the CIO. But for the CTO, it's more about the architecture design of the corporate technologies and how they play in. It's more of an architect role for the CTO. I, I guess probably companies which are building SaaS products will have a CTO who's... Like yes, more technology focused. The, Not necessarily. Yeah. There are companies like, you know, banks and others who actually use CTOs and CIO mm-hmm. roles. It's a more comprehensive role than what a CTO. CTO of more technology, CIO more business function uh, and uh, board focused. Okay, okay. Got it. Okay. And uh, so... You're saying that you want to also extend your product further to micro-enterprises. So you would create like a, a lightweight version of the product for them? or Yes. So we are looking at a lightweight version of the product for the micro-enterprises. The idea is to uh, do a self-serviceable model for the micro-enterprises that does not need uh, any deployment cycle or any um, heavy lifting from uh, the micro-enterprises themselves. So it's going to be very, very light touch for the micro enterprises so it's as simple as like you guys need didn't need huge kind of efforts to sign up for linkedin or um, sign up for uh, your own antivirus that you have on your systems or any other SaaS products we want to keep it that level of light touch where we handle most of the policies on the back end for you uh, and you can customize those to your wish if you uh, want to or we will provide the support on that back uh, this is something that we've been playing with for the last one and a half year. Um, now, we are very confident that we built a very scalable platform for that. Uh, and now the biggest challenge is obviously getting the word out there. Okay, interesting. Um, can you help me understand what is your product at its core? Uh, you are capturing data which is uh, being generated at the endpoint, which is the device of the consumer. And the data which is the communication between device and network and all of that is getting put into a database and there is some sort of a way to parse the data to figure out if there is some unusual behavior is that what it is at a very very uh, nascent level yes that is correct right i mean the data interactions are not just between uh, uh, your device there's so many security tools security layers in between right we're looking at data from every single layer. We're looking at the flow data. We're looking at the endpoint data. We're looking at user activity from a domain, from any other identity management tool. We're looking at vulnerability management data. We're looking at uh, network traffic analytics. We're looking at file behavior, user behavior, uh, entity behavior, and bringing all of these data points together from multiple data sets and bringing them onto a common schema to stitch them together and use machine learning algorithms. Uh, and some artificial intelligence models 
to figure out where there is actually a critical alert and where the alert has as you know has a you know a, a real attack that is behind it which needs to be solved right now and what are the things that you can solve in the next five days right essentially that's what we're trying to do and this takes a lot of time and effort in security operation centers today security operation centers are largely overwhelmed with the number of alerts right a typical security operation analyst life is very boring uh, they usually look at the alerts, verify that it's done, close the ticket, so on and so forth. And they're being measured for the wrong things. How quickly can they look at the ticket? How quickly can they own the ticket? Is what they're being measured on, which is actually wrong measurement. It is okay for an IT system, but it's not okay for a security system. A security system is how efficiently I'm able to manage that information and how efficiently I'm able to make a determination whether something is a false positive or is actually an incident. That becomes really important, for which triage is very important. So the level one analyst, level two analyst, level three analyst, and the skill scarcity uh, is actually real in cybersecurity, right? Um, I'm sure skill scarcity must exist in other areas of infrastructure, uh, information technology, but in cybersecurity, it is a very real problem. And when I said this the other day, some of the podcasters was mentioning, hey, I see people applying for all kinds of jobs and we open up one uh, role and I receive 100 resumes and I'm like, that does not mean you have this skill. That only means you have a number of people interested. My problem is that, and my problem and many clients that I talk to is, it's not that they cannot find people, it's that, that they cannot find people with the right skill. And that is the problem, right? And that skill scarcity is real. And if you look at it, right? I mean, we had information technology for what, last 40, 50 years. And there have been professional education training institutes offering this kind of, uh, when you say, uh, graduate level, postgraduate level courses for the last 30, for 30, 35 years. Cybersecurity is brand new. So that skill gap does exist. Uh, I'll still rely on that and say that if I can get people to operate at one level above there, if I can allow analysts to punch above their weight, then I call it a success. Right. If I can make it very easy for the analyst to understand this is an attack without him having to put too much effort, then I think it's a strong value proposition. And that's what we are here to do. Right Before the analyst even looks at the alert, the triage is already done. The storyboard is laid out. The response and remedial actions are also laid out. If you want us to take automated action, we have our own source, security orchestration, automation, and response tools that we can use to do this. Or you can point and click and get it done. It's really up to you. And bringing all of that together is what we really do at scale. And that's what we really excel at. Um, case in point, we, having built ground up, we are very efficient in our operations. So we're able to do this at a cost that, has, that is totally unheard of. Uh, I mean, this podcast might be a good place to announce it also, right? So we're able to offer to our customers a dollar twenty-five cents per gigabit on a consumption-based model, which essentially is what cloud is. Right today, you don't pay for AWS by number of instances; you pay by how much CPU you're utilizing, how much uh, data transfer you're doing, how much storage you're doing, how much memory, so on and so forth. It's a pure consumption-based model, and we believe that being a SaaS company, we should also be a very consumption-based model, not necessarily a per-user license per endpoint license, per EPS license, which actually is very confusing to the end customers. 
So we're going with a per, and especially when our customer, our specific customers, our direct customers are turning out to be service providers, not necessarily the end client himself, because most clients are getting rid of their internal teams and outsourcing it to a service provider for efficiency and to address the skill problem at large and saying, hey, my job is to, uh, you know, uh, do research and build tablets and syrups and other things. Why am I spending so much time in cybersecurity, right? Or my job is to build widgets and, you know, moisturizing cream or, you know, build cups, vases, whatever I do, my widgets. Why am I spending so much time in cybersecurity, right? Let me offsource it to a subject matter expert, which is a service provider, and let him handle. And I'll only be responsible for the outcomes. He will be responsible for the execution, management, and ownership, right? This this is the... Service providers could be like, say, an Infosys Wipro or like, wh- who are these? Uh, those are what we call a solution integrators. The areas are a little great in India, but largely diverse in uh, more uh, advanced countries. Uh, take it with a pinch of salt, uh, especially if you look at the evolution of cybersecurity, the West has always been a little ahead of India. Take a look at technology evolution. India has always been ahead of the West. So... Right. Um, so in in Europe and uh, uh, affluent Europe and uh, in US, uh, you know, uh, service providers handle a lot of this. Managed security service providers are very different from solution integration. Yeah, any big name that I would have heard of? Um, and- you know, Dell SecureWorks. Okay. SecureWorks is a name. Verizon. Verizon Business is one of those names. AT&T okay. Business is one of those names. Right. A lot of these people do managed security services at tier one level. Okay. And, right. and any uh, these Indian, are one of the biggest Indian players Indian? out there. Um, I don't know. Uh, I have never looked at something as an Indian name or an okay. American name. Pardon me. Because, yeah, because, I mean, uh, like, I, because you only know. See, the, the TechMindras, the Infosys, the TCS, the Vipros, all of these are existing in U.S. market as managed service providers also. Hmm. In India, SIs are also doing the MSSP work. Hmm. It's very uncommon. Like, you know, the cognizance of the world are also doing MSSP work. That happens to be one of their business lines. But when you look at the markets, right, those are more at a large enterprise level. For the medium enterprises that we are focused on, they work so a lot with uh, security service providers who are MSSPs, managed security service providers, uh, not SIs or anybody else. Uh, so that it turns out to be our co-market because the whole market is moving towards a pay-as-you-go model, if you will, right? Everything we are doing today is a pay-as-you-go model. Most building apartments today, even your electricity is a pay-as-you-go model anymore. So I think it makes more sense for us to actually start that revolution and say, hey, you know what? Don't worry about owning anything. Just pay as you go. Right? And, pay for uh, only what you use. Pay for only what we what you consume. That's it. What is the difference between MSSP and MDR? So your MSSP is responsible for the care and feed of the appliances also. Your MDR is responsible for the outcomes and proactive detection of threats. MSSP is more reactive. MDR is more proactive. At least that's the expectation of the market. Hmm. Okay, okay, okay. Got it, okay. So what you're saying is that your customers uh, end up largely being MSSPs. And you're charging MSSPs and MDR providers. And MDR providers, okay. And you charge them $1.25 per GB. What is a GB here? A, a GB of data that... It's a gigabit story? of data that we have ingested from the customer to process the logs, raw log, whatever, and make sense out of it, right? 
That's what so, we're talking about. So this this GB is also getting stored in your data center, or from this GB, some part of it is stored in your data center. L- like you actually, are- all of it is stored within our data centers, okay. uh, within our cloud environments. Mm-hmm. Now, we are, we stand very unique in this space uh, today, where we offer the capability to use our SaaS platform but still store the data within your environment. That is something that no other provider in this ecosystem does. Uh, we are the pioneers of that. We allow people to keep the data within their own environment and only use our interfaces for that. That's 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 something that's very, very unique to us. Okay. Okay. For an MSSP, this makes a lot more sense because they would want to have that, uh, like they would see that as more proprietary, the data, and they would want to not really uh, share it out with their vendor further. Yes. So uh, MSSPs actually don't want to keep that data. They don't want to manage the infrastructure. They don't want to manage the software. They only want to manage the outcomes for their clients. Mm. So they, they're more than happy to let us keep that. But there are some banks, uh, financial institutions, uh, clients that want to keep the data themselves, but still want these capabilities. Uh, those kind of customers we are able to address, right? There's no other vendor in the market today, including Exabeam, CrowdStrike, Humio, whoever you pick. All the data has to be given to them. We don't have that requirement. Mm-hmm. We stand okay. pretty unique in that space. Yeah, okay, okay. So uh, essentially, your product has two broad uh, capabilities. One is ingesting data, and second is uh, parsing the data or like, creating intelligence based on the data, right? Uh, on streaming. So we do that not at rest. Mm-hmm. We do that while the data is streaming itself. Okay. Real-time, uh, like creating real-time, real-time intelligence uh, on that data. Uh, yes. For ingesting data, is this, uh, like, between these two, which one was harder to build? Like, is it easy to ingest all the data which happens? Like, are there, like, you know, well-established pipes through which you can ingest that data, like through APIs and all that? Or no, you have to... See, um, I, I honestly would say uh, the detection engineering is the harder piece. Mapping them to a common schema is the harder piece. But I don't think pipelines are that hard. Pipelines are relatively easy to manage uh, and control. Uh, but pipelines take more care and feed than detection engineering, if you will. Detection engineering is, yes, it's hard, but uh, I would say uh, it's Once relatively easy it. and it's not monotonous. Uh, pipeline Building pipelines and working with these large data sets and, you know, when you, most customers, when you work with them, they have some legacy systems for which you have to build parsers. That's a little monotonous. That can get a little monotonous. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, so but being able to provide that to our visibility to our customers that they did not have for the last 10 years, that's eye-opening. And when the customer comes back and gives you that feedback, that is well worth the effort. How did you build the intelligence? You have this whole bunch of data which you're ingesting through pipelines coming into your data center. Uh, how did you build intelligence that uh, this is uh, something which needs to be flagged and this is how you find out that what happened before, what happened after. This is how you give a recommendation. This is the recommendation for this kind of a red flag and so on. So, I mean, I've I've close to 20 years of experience in the cybersecurity industry and put together within my core team, we have close to a century of experience in the cybersecurity industry. A lot of that intelligence is coming from us and a lot of research work that happens in this space. Uh, We have our own threat research team 
that is constantly vetting what we are doing versus what the industry is doing and where we are landing up, how good our detections are and what the attackers are doing and where we need to go, what is the future state, so on and so forth. So we rely very heavily on our research team. But at the same time, we also rely on a lot of signal intelligence data we get from our own sensors spread across 30 countries. Uh, what is, what is this extensive, signal intelligence? Data? We have our own uh, sensors that we spread across over 30 countries across the globe, and we listen for what kind of attacks are happening, what kind of attacks are being conducted against what kinds of applications, uh, what is the most popular attack vector, wh who is doing what. And we also ingest data from sources like you know Verizon threat reports and uh, AT&T threat reports, so on and so forth. So a lot of this data actually goes into, as part of our research, into building new detection models, faster detection, faster response, faster remediation. That's really cyber resilience delivered for you. That's what we're focused what, on. What, what do you mean by sensor? I, I didn't get that. Oh, sensors. So when we say sensors, these are just uh, small lightweight systems that we host in multiple areas, multiple data centers hmm. to look for malicious traffic and analyze it. So, like, say there is this uh, data center, I think Adani has a data center in Mumbai, so you would have a, a machine there and that machine would be listening to what is happening in that data center and uh, trying to identify if there is... Who is it trying to attack that data center? What kind of attacks are coming in? What kind of attacks are going out? And all of that data we try to listen, yes. And this is with consent of the provider, the the, the person running the data center? Yes, yes. Okay. We can't get any data without the consent of the actual provider himself. himself. Okay, okay, okay. Interesting. And why do they give you this? But that's why there are, you know, threat intelligence companies uh, that work like Verizon and the AT&T's of the world. See, Verizon, after it bought MCI WorldCom, it owns over, I think, close to 60, 64% of the world's traffic goes through their pipeline. Okay. In some shape or form, when the, they bought MCI WorldCom. The fiber uh, optic. You remember, uh, that was like 16, 18 years ago. Yeah. That yeah. happened. Yeah. So they became the owners of close to that level of traffic and their intelligence is usually the best uh, because they see the most traffic and they sense the most of it, right? And But the good news is a lot of these companies come together and share that intelligence with the rest of the world because there is no one winner, one loser when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, we're all going to lose, we're all going to win, right? So, I mean, if you're attacked, you know, you're your clients can't say, hey, I don't really care if Akshay gets attacked. No, if Akshay gets attacked, also it becomes your problem. Mm. And your client gets attacked, his clients become problem, uh, have a problem on their hands. So it is not one I win, you lose kind of a situation, right? We all have to win together. We all have to lose together. Okay, okay. So right now, how your intelligence happens is through like a directory approach. You are creating a directory of all possible threats uh, through a, a research team and through like gathering information through the sensors and so on. So, so that's how the intelligence happens. Yes. And there are many threat intelligence companies that actually specialize only on threat intelligence, which is like telling you a disruption attacker is coming from this address and he's trying to deploy these kind of files and so on and so forth. We consume that data also. Uh, commercial threat feeds that customers uh, subscribe to we can actually feed, take a feed from any of those uh, sources also. So it's not that only our generated data will be given. 
you have freedom to choose what you want. Like, I mean, I, as I said, you know, I started this company because I did not have the freedom to do what I want. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, would you say right now XDR is what uh, version one of antivirus was, like a directory approach? And uh, like, no, version no, no. One so, see, had uh, it, it has always of- been. What is all? What was needed was always been an XDR, and essentially, this is going to become a data problem. And we've been saying it for over a decade that security is a big data problem. Security is not specific detection, specific ML, or anything like that. Right? All of this collectively comes together and becomes a big data problem, and that's what we are also solving here. Uh, while uh, most uh, most uh, of our competitors say 30 days hard, 40 days hard, 60 days hard. We are what saying is, what unlimited. is hard? Hard. What? Uh, hard is the amount of data you can have online, and the rest of the data goes and sits in an archive. Okay. Right. Uh, it's very interesting when we come out and say, uh, with our new release, uh, we are today able to provide unlimited hot storage without charging anything extra. So all of your data is available for you in a split second for you to analyze whenever you need to. So today the problem is uh, if I have a 30-day hot, that means that at any given point, last 30 days worth of data is actually available for me. If I need to look at data from January, so for example, today we are sitting at October 2023. If I want to go back to January and look for the data because my auditor is asking or because I saw a threat or I got intelligence that there was an attack that happened on my network or from my network and a threat intelligence company has reported to the regulator and regulator wants me to verify i cannot load that data i have to pay extra that data has to get loaded analyzed and only then i'll be able to uh, work with it right and that may be january that may be one month that may be 30 days that may be 300 days you really don't know and it's humongous work right for these companies to actually go look for that kind of work. In in the world of Blue Sapphire, if you are a Blue Sapphire customer, you just switch the date to January and you're there. There's really no, I mean, no dependence on anything else. Uh, data is always online. Uh, so we're doing this with a very large provider in the US. Um, they don't want to be named, but they are one of the lar- world's largest trading platform providers. Then uh, the finance company and uh, they, use a particular same, uh, which is our competitor, and they send all the data archives to S3 buckets. Uh, we Now, today, they are actually moving towards giving all that data to us because today they have it on S3, but they don't have any capability to work with that data after it hits the S3 bucket. What is the S3 bucket? Uh, it's a storage blob. Okay. <laughs> For an S3 bucket, right? Um, essentially, we all know storage as being attached to a compute unit. Like, you know, if you have a hard disk, uh, your laptop is actually the one that is actually attached to that hard drive in your system, and that's how, that's how you have access to it. Um, you connect a USB drive or something, and then you have a backup drive, and that's how you have access to that storage. Otherwise, that storage is not online. Uh, to bring that storage online, you have somebody called something called NAS systems, network attached storage system that customer that vendors are willing to sell you which you can actually attach into your network and from anywhere within your network, you can reach it. Now, extrapolate that to a global scale, right? And anywhere from internet, you are able to reach it. That becomes your S3 in short. Okay. Um, so 
you're saying that uh, one big USP of Blue Sapphire is that uh, a CISO or, or a security team can read data, which is even a year old. Uh, is this data readable by humans? Uh, I mean, what what do you mean when you Through say our that? interfaces, we provide a very fast analytical user interface that they can actually use to read the data, query the data, perform analytics on it, all in near real time, irrespective of how old that data was. What what is uh, like what? Give me an example. Like you'll tell them this was the network traffic or this was the amount of GBs. Say for example, right? Uh, a cert fin or let's just take an example of a banker, some banker X in India, and certain came back and said, "Hey, we have detected a uh, say a computer emergency response team, uh, and they are usually responsible for all cyber intelligence to nation state that affect nation state." Uh, to the organizations that are too big to fail for the nation. Hmm. Right? They share that intelligence within the organization. So, so it is so, like a government uh, thingy. like Government-driven regulatory board. Uh, sorry, government-driven uh, entity uh, that does not have direct influence, but that is responsible for sharing and acting on all nation-state attacks and assets that, are, that the nation deems critical. Hmm. Banking okay. sector being one of them. Hmm. Okay. It could be oil and gas. It could be anything. Right. So I'm just taking a banker X. And, you know, a lot of these customers today, uh, they do process logs, they do look for threat intelligence matches and all of that, and then they archive that data as regulated by the regulatory provider. Maybe he's asking them to store data worth of two years, quite possible. Then six months down the line, certain comes in and says, hey, we saw a Russian attacker targeting you. I'm just taking names randomly. And we see that going back, we see we came across some data which was six months old and that got published just now and that information is six months old and that information belongs to you. Can you go back and tell us how this happened? And confirm that that attacker is no longer in your network. How are you going to do that? If you don't have the data, you will have to bring that data back from archives load it back to your indexing systems, whatever they are, and then start going at piecemeal basis. If you're a customer of Blue Sapphire, you just launch the Blue Sapphire tool, change the dates to the relevant dates, and start looking for the data right away. There's no time gap. There's no compute, additional storage, additional infrastructure that you have to stand up just to process this data. None of that exists. What, what, what are you yeah. looking for uh, when you load that date? It could be anything. It could be network footprint. It could be network traffic. It could be data exfiltration. It could be a log activity that, that some data was lost. Or it could be user credentials that were compromised. Or there were login details from an external third party, which were supposed to be maybe in Mumbai, and you saw a login from somewhere outside the country. Or all that kind. Any of that could be an identifier. And that has, any of that could be an artifact, for that matter. And you're looking for all of that information. For you to load all of that data, build all that infrastructure on demand, and then load all of that data, process that information, and dedicate infrastructure for that, and all of that is a huge headache. With Blue Sapphire, all you need is a browser. Mm, got it. Change okay. the relevant dates and look for the data you want. It's already there, pre-tagged in most cases. Mm, okay. Uh, how do you sell? How do you... Uh get a get your foot in the door uh, how do you convert uh, from an initial lead into a sales you know the, do you have some uh, best practices around it which you have discovered that this has 
what works best for us. And because you're selling in North America, so it's a very competitive market. You're competing with, let's say, a CrowdStrike, which is like a well-known brand and so on. So how do you manage to sell? And you bring up a very uh, important question, right? And especially this is a problem for a lot of Indian startups. Indian startups are not known for their product prowess. They're very well known for their service capabilities across the globe, but not for product prowess. And especially not for cybersecurity prowess. Uh, Israel is the go-to country for most of these companies. And they believe in that promise coming from Israel, not necessarily from India. Well, this is a change of per- perception we have to fight. That that goes without saying, and you know, uh, it's a process. But more importantly, so right, cybersecurity is a big issue primarily because, and especially where we operate, we operate at the core of cybersecurity in the security operations center, and we offer an entire platform. And it will be foolish of us to expect that somebody will actually totally replace all everything they're using and users. That doesn't happen. Some cases it does, but most cases it doesn't. Most cases, customers look at what is the difference between what they're using today and what we can offer and just buy that difference and start with that. Maybe it's agentless threat hunting. Maybe it is network behavior analytics. Maybe it is UEBA, whatever the case might be. Those are the things usually customers start with. And as they start seeing the value of the platform and uh, the efficiency, they start spreading and retiring their existing technology debt and taking more and more of blue sapphire modules into their ecosystem. That is typically how we sell. Uh, A large portion of our sales has moved into service providers. Uh, That's the practical truth. I think it's global truth everywhere Uh, because everything in security has turned into a service and we don't want to be a service company. So we typically work with service companies. Um, And security is a hard sell. For multiple reasons, right? It's very easy for customers or some folks to compare them and say, hey, you know what, Uh, we're able to sell so fast and effectively. Uh, But that may be an ancillary piece that a customer needs and may be able to survive in case of a catastrophe in that area. Um, And that could be anywhere from, uh, uh, you know, a sale doesn't stop because Salesforce is not online. Right? Um, so, uh, or a ticketing system is offline, doesn't stop infrastructure from being managed. Uh, but when security malfunctions, it hits at the core of the organization. So it is like replacing your engine and asking you to buy an inferior quality engine for your car. That nobody will do. And it takes time to build brand presence in that area as opposed to any other area. I'm not saying other areas are not difficult. But I'm just you, trying to set the perspective that this is actually a very difficult area to break through because you said, you know, there are big brands in the U.S. and it's a very difficult area to break through because customers look for that trust value. And trust is not earned overnight, especially with something that they hold as close to their chest. So you don't actually need to convince the end customers as much. If you're selling to MSSPs, then you're... Uh... Your sales pitch is not about security is important, but rather about how my product is better for you. No, um, that is the sad part, right? The customer is also interested in what is being used by the MSSP to secure his environment. And he wants to have a big say in that area. 
So a lot of what the customer does and feels is very important. The very few customers in the space, maybe micro enterprises say, hey, I don't care. This is what I need. But a lot of them just want to know what is being used, irrespective of whether they want to have a say in it or not. Uh, so evangelization with the end customer becomes very important for us. There's almost no deal that we have not spoken to the end customer, showcase our prowess to them and our capabilities, and we've not gone into a POC battle. Those doesn't happen. Almost every customer we meet, uh, irrespective of whether it is through a service provider or it is a lead that has come directly from us. Okay, got it. Uh, what kind of revenues do you do currently? What this year? What we are, you... We're hitting close to three million right now, uh, and uh, we're looking north of six million by March. We'll see how that goes. I think we're trying to be very aggressive in a down market, uh, but I think we have the we have what it takes. Okay, and you've done a fundraise also, right? I think around nine million. Yes, we raised about nine point two million. Uh, Series A, uh, and had uh, some global investors participate, and we raised it in India. Oh, you raised it in India. Okay. Uh, why did you choose to raise it in your company is incorporated in India, or where's your? Yeah, company is incorporated in India, and we have an extended arm that is 100% subsidiary owned in the US that operates independently in the US, except for financial reporting, it doesn't actually tie into the company. But yes, it's 100% owned and operated as an Indian entity. Why did you choose that, like to incorporate in India? Because you've spent a lot of time um, in the US. You could have just started off in the US only. That's what you would think. Uh, but the fun thing is, uh, I, for my entire time I spent in the US, I've never thought of starting a company. Uh, I've always remained a geek, uh, technologist. I still am a technologist at heart. And I love technology discussions, participating in technology conversations. That has been my core strength. Uh, architecture, cybersecurity, defense, uh, uh, attack, all of these areas. I've uh, built my career ground up in those areas and that still remains my primary passion. With that being my primary passion, I didn't interact with the community that much. I was very closed uh, into my own shell. Uh, but that's also not why we did not raise in US. We primarily raised in India because that's where the product was actually built. Uh, the entire product was built out of India. Uh, I came, I moved to India just to build the product. And we thought it was actually appropriate for us to do it that way. Uh, was it hard to... Honestly, India is a lot in harder India. to work. Uh, India is a lot harder country to do business in than in US. I'll give you that at any cost. India is much harder to raise capital and work with capital uh, with respect to regulatory compliances and other stuff as opposed to the United States. Uh, but I think we did what we did and we are very happy how we did it. Uh, how did the fundraise happen? Did you, like, was it like a journey of like lots and lots of no's before you heard a yes or did you have credibility already and so it was not that difficult or like? We are going to be on air. I'm not going to say we heard no's at all. <laughs> I have to market myself. You put me in a hard <laughs> position, but... Yes, uh, it is going to be a journey of no, it's going to be a journey of uh, yes, and it's going to be journeys of maybes. It's going to be a journey of yeses that actually don't materialize. Uh, my advice is that, you know, just understand that, you know, uh, a lot of this investment happens when you and your investor are in the same place at the same time with respect to your thought processes and what he is thinking also. A lot of it, when you hear a no, a lot of it is not because uh, of you. Are your product. 
Well, some of it maybe you'll need to be able to make that distinction yourself. But a lot of it has to do with what the investor profile is and what he's committed to investing in. And it may not match with what you are trying to do. And that's usually why you hear no. Right. And the investment community is very professional for that matter, actually. Um, I've heard, uh, I've, I've had really, really good conversations where, where people were more than willing to offer help in making connections. I've been asked uh, share information that they have, that they're privy to in the market, so on and so forth. So, uh, and it is, it is, my experience in U.S. is also similar. Right? When I speak to investors from U.S., the experience is similar. So as an investor community, they are committed to investing. It's just that you and your investor have to be at the same place, uh, both psychologically, uh, financially, and economically for this to work. Um, so that's something that you have to understand. Mm, okay, got it, got it. Okay. Um, you said that uh, there are regulatory changes you anticipate in India, which will make 2025 as the year of cybersecurity in India. Give me a broad overview what's happening on the regulatory front uh, with respect to some of the data privacy regulations that are coming on board and they need to find their teeth uh, while they come on board. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the SEBI does a good job of maintaining control, RBI does a good job of doing this, but bringing something uh, into law is a very different aspect from bringing something into a regulatory compliance mode. Law is a law, right? And it is punishable uh, by jail time. It is punishable for, by some real hard facts that will hit you. Uh, compliance usually is a slap on the wrist. If you don't comply, you get to pay some fine and move on and so on and so forth. So I think the law needs to get time to gain teeth, grow, and become as widespread as uh, it needs to. Uh, it'll take a couple of years. Uh, and I think that's where... Uh, Is there a specific law, like a, one flagship law, which you think will be a game changer? No, in India, it is DPDP. Which is uh, what, what is full form? Data privacy law that just got launched, right? Uh, and I think a data, local, data localization laws in India will also grow. We already started asking most of the multinational companies to store India citizens' data within Indian boundaries. Uh, so these kind of things will actually start expanding globally and data privacy will become big. Uh, the challenge always has been why security is a little slow to pick up in India is that people don't care about their privacy that much. We've already we always been such tight-knit uh, communities that uh, privacy was something that was never given a top seat. Right. I mean, everybody is nosy and everybody is into everybody's business. But I think that's changing slowly because they understand it's not about being nosy or people knowing about you. It's what they can do as they impersonate you. And larger portion of that is not necessarily because the government is doing a great job of vocalizing that information uh, or the community itself is doing a great job of vocalizing that information. They are, but not really. It's more the financial loss that uh, individuals are facing across. Uh, that uh, is allowing them to learn those lessons very, very fast, right? The phishing attacks, the phone phishing attacks, the banking frauds that most individuals are getting impacted by, that is where the reality is hitting. I was surprised by this little story I want to share with you. Um, I had a driver that I booked for Delhi when I was in Delhi uh, last year, uh, not even last year, two years ago, uh, to take me around because I was tired of getting through Ubers and waiting for them and so on. 
at the end of the day, I would pay the same amount. So I just booked the driver for the entire day. He was sharing with me uh, how his mobile gets information and he's being fished for a uh, pin on his car. And he's like, they were so convincing when they called me, Sahib, to see, he, they were actually talking about my bank account. They're talking about the loans I had. They knew pretty much where I live. They know what I do for a living. They pretty much sounded so genuine. So I gave them the pin and I lost 5,000 rupees, which may not be much, uh, but it is still a lot for somebody who uh, works on a day labor basis, right? So, uh, and the lesson he learned out of it was more interesting, right? He's like, he, he still does use his phone a lot and does financial banking, everything through his phone, but he knows immediately how to identify fraudulent calls now, right? So I think that is doing a much better job than what others can. And it's all about security awareness, right? We do this at enterprises, like in our organization, as I said, right? It's part of our onboarding, but we also ensure that they take those lessons back home because it's not just our employee, it is our employee's family as well that needs to be cyber secure for Blue Sapphire to remain cyber secure. Yeah, the the supply chain attack. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Cool. Uh, any uh, last words of advice for people who are looking to become founders? You became a founder fairly late in your life. Uh, so, for someone who's like you, thinking of should they become a founder or not, any advice? Largely a personal choice, but uh, it opened up my world. Uh, I. I Never realized I was living in a cocoon. Uh, there's a very popular saying, Kupasta Mandukam, you know, frog what in a well. Ah, okay. Ah. <laughs> right. Uh, I never knew what was happening outside my comfort zone. Uh, this really opened up. If you are say, getting into this to say, hey, you know, I don't, I want to be a master of my own domain. I want to, I don't want to report to anybody. I want to be the king and all that. They're, yeah, you're in for a big surprise. Yeah. Because now right. you report. Yeah, because now you report to everybody in your organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not just, just your, <laughs> your investors. Not just your investors, investors. not just anybody. Yeah. You report to every employee in your organization and you're answerable to every employee in your organization. So be very careful. Um, uh, but it is a fun journey. And I think the future is all about micro enterprises. Uh, that's where the future is. The long-term jobs and all of that is gone. If you, there's something that you want to explore, now is the time. Mm. It is really the golden era of entrepreneurship. <laughs> Do you see Blue Sapphire becoming a unicorn one day? I don't believe in unicorns and popcorns. Uh, what I want to become is a billion-dollar company. And I have charted out my journey with that uh, aspiration in mind. We'll get there. I don't want to do it overnight. I'm not a big believer that things happen overnight. Sikkim lottery lagti hai, kisi ki lagti hai, but sabki nahi lagti. What's the path so, to... Uh, you're saying billion-dollar revenues? A billion-dollar value. Uh, okay. And I think we'll get there fairly quickly. Uh, which which would mean I like think. about 100 to 200 million revenue? About 100 to 200 million in revenue, yeah. So uh, what's the path to... I think to... we'll get there fairly quickly. With uh, just this one product or the the micro-enterprise second product that you have in mind also or like? All together. I think every, every because I think we have actually democratized security operations and uh, this is what will take us to the next billion, including our micro-enterprise model. 
uh, and we have the potential to be that next billion dollar company. Uh, we'll take our time. We're slow. We're patient. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.